Welcome to Vital Times, the podcast where we discover how to live longer, fuller, healthier, more fulfilling lives in turbulent times. We will explore ideas about health, longevity, the environment, social change, consciousness and spirituality, and many other cutting-edge ideas. Please note that the ideas presented in this show are not intended as medical or dental advice and are presented here for educational purposes only. If you have any health issues or concerns, please see your local qualified healthcare provider. Also, the ideas expressed by guests on this show are their own and may not be shared by the host or other makers of this podcast. Welcome once again, everyone. Enjoy the show and remember, these times are vital and our power is now. Hi everyone, it's great to be back for episode 2 of Vital Times. Thank you so much everyone for joining me. I'm very excited today to bring you an interview with Dr. Robert Verkirk. Uh, now, Dr. Verkirk is an internationally acclaimed expert in agricultural, environmental and health sustainability. He's published over 60 papers in scientific journals and is an amazing, informative and inspiring speaker. He's currently the executive and scientific director of the Alliance for Natural Health. The Alliance for Natural Health is a not-for-profit organization that works tirelessly on behalf of all of us and generations to come to promote the benefits of and secure us all access to natural and sustainable health care. Now today we're going to learn the truth about the global movement towards the control and prevention of our health care choices through such things as Codex Alimentarius and other international organizations. Dr. Verkirk cuts through all the misinformation and presents to us in clear language the dangers that we're all facing. But in amongst giving us the details of the global machine that seeks to control us, Dr. Verkirk maintains an amazingly positive vision of the future and gives us practical advice about how we too can work in our daily lives to create this bright future. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy the interview. I'm here at the offices of the Alliance for Natural Health in the beautiful town of Dorking in Surrey. And I have the uh, pleasure of talking to the executive and scientific director, Dr. Robert Verkirk. Welcome, Robert, to Vital Times, and thanks for joining us. Hi, how are you? It's a real pleasure to, to be able to talk to you. I thought we'd begin this uh, interview today just uh, to find out what exactly is the Alliance for Natural Health and maybe a little bit about yourself and uh, how you got involved in this important work. Well, the Alliance for Natural Health is essentially a non-governmental campaign organization that exists in order to make a difference. Um, the areas that we work to make a difference in is to facilitate an environment that allows natural health care, ways of looking after our bodies that work with nature rather than against nature, to be able to take their rightful place as the dominant approach in healthcare. Um, it's the way all other animals and plants do it. Um, we are very peculiar in the fact that we have adopted um, in recent times approaches that actually contravene the laws of nature and we're suffering badly as a result of it. And um, at the same time there are many processes that work through the media, through the medical education system, um, through regulation that are putting major obstacles in the way. So we are also 
very much involved in trying to facilitate the development of a more appropriate scientific and regulatory framework that actually befits natural health care. Great. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about these uh, regulations and things going on on the international stage that may be affecting our access to natural health? The, there are a complex of processes that, that work at the, at the global level. We see the notion of governments and the United Nations coming together in an organization that is called Codex Alimentarius, which um, is Latin for the food code. And they are effectively developing guidelines, recommendations and standards to manage the way in which food is produced, distributed, processed and sold around the world. And, and of course it's a system that basically is designed to assist very large corporations to deliver foods and supermarkets. It has nothing whatsoever to do with community-based or locally-based um, food production systems and um and therein lies its big problem it, it 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 feeds an idea that we should all run along to our supermarket and buy food that's come in from many many different places in the world with huge amounts of air miles on it that has often been chemically treated with additives it may have been irradiated um it may have been processed in particular ways to try and manage microbiological diseases which foodborne diseases are a major problem if that's the way in which you're going to basically produce your food. Um, and um, it is also, while, while on one hand it tries to reduce barriers to trade, it also has this um, unsavory aspect of consumer protection which can work both ways. On one, on one level it can say, okay, let's find ways of making sure that we knock out all the nasty bugs in the food, which often devalues the nature of the food in the process. But also, when it comes to the inclusion of wholesome foods that are organic, for example, or the use of, say, vitamins and minerals, it has a very precautionary approach. And um, if you look at the vitamin and mineral guideline that Codex has produced, it is basically a recipe to sell cellulose and cotton wool to people around the world um, because they argue that that's safe. And the fact that those products will make absolutely no difference to your health in the vast majority of cases is not of great interest to them. And in fact, um, because it's a vehicle in which transnational corporations have huge influence and work with governments to get what they want, um, the smaller companies that have been pioneering in the field of natural health care, whether they are local food producers or raw milk producers or um, herb producers or natural vitamin producers, um, they just do not get a look in. And, um, and that's really what people need to become very aware of in terms of how these systems act. Um, in essence, there are four main areas that are in the crosshairs of this international system. And we're, what we're beginning to see now is real convergence of the regulatory regimes in Europe, in Canada, in Australia, even in the United States that has enjoyed 
up until quite recently, um, a much more liberal system. But that liberal system was hard won by Americans um, responding um, in huge numbers, probably in larger numbers than has ever been experienced at Congress back in 1994 with the ushering in of the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act. Um, and people like Mel Gibson got in behind it. There were television campaigns. And, um, you know, people feel quite rightly passionate about being in control of what they put into their bodies. And if you're going to have a sustainable healthcare system that doesn't just allow people to, to have devalued supermarket foods, get sick, go to their doctor and be prescribed drugs, which is the system that exists at the moment, which is wholly unsustainable. If we're going to have a sustainable system. The individual needs to be at the center of the process. The individual needs to be fully informed in terms of what the options are. The individual needs to understand that by and large, working by having as healthy a diet and as healthy a lifestyle as you can is the absolute foundation of this. And um, it's a very strange system that for those people who are trying to do that, not only are they often very confused by the deliberately contradictory information that is regularly put out by the mainstream media, um, they also, when they go and see their doctor, don't have those ideas reinforced in any way because all of that information is in no way part of the educational background of medical doctors. And until we see a big change in the way in which medical training is conducted around the world, we have a problem. Um, it's very interesting when you look at some of the great Eastern traditions, such as Ayurveda from the Indian subcontinent or Chinese traditional medicine, or Kampo in Japan, or Korean medicine, or the Southern African traditions, or the Amazonian traditions, none of that blinkering occurs. The, those systems are truly holistic systems. Um, and um, what, we're, what we're in now in terms of the general public is a phase of fusion, whereby some of the ideas that are quite workable from Western Orthodox medicine can happily sit alongside some of the ideas in orthomolecular medicine, um, the use of um, vitamins and minerals that can sit alongside um, some of the ideas in both Western and Eastern and other non-European forms of herbal medicine. So it's this great fusion phase. And um, this fusion phase of integrative phase in medicine is, is an exciting time. Um, but, of course, it's complicated by the fact that um, some of these great non-European herbal traditions and other healthcare traditions that are truly holistic are massively under attack. And um, so people will pick up their newspapers and say, you know, keep away from Ayurvedic medicines. They're full of heavy metals. They're not told that there is actually a whole subset of the Ayurvedic tradition that engages with using metals that are treated in very specific ways. Um, there are, have been cases of spiking of Chinese um, herbal products with drugs, um, and, um, but they are very, very few and far between. And if you're going to have a regulatory system, you cannot throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's all very well to find 
um, better systems of quality control, but you don't want to, as is in the process of happening here in Europe, um, we run the risk by May 2011 of having the vast majority of Chinese and Indian medicines that are based on herbs no longer available to the consumer. Um, that is a, a huge problem if we're going to have a, a you know a self-care system in which people have free access to products that really do make a profound difference to health. Can you maybe explain how how all of this filters down from a body like Codex that, uh, from what I understand, is just a, a body that comes up with ideas or frameworks for things and how that filters down into law and puts so much pressure on governments to do things against what the people would actually want because I've, I've been speaking to people and a lot of the thing that I hear them say is but why would anybody want to take away my choice? Um, so often people don't really understand. So how what's actually driving this? Well, the, the first thing to, to recognize is that Codex is restricted only to the area of food. It has no remit whatsoever in the field of medicine and information on the internet frequently tells us otherwise and that information unfortunately is wrong. There is unfortunately a major cloud of misinformation around this whole area. Some of it is deliberately put out there to confuse people and of course the the game is that if you confuse people um, they don't know where to go and in the end they um, become reliant on the guy that they grew up feeling was at the center of the healthcare system and that was the, the the man or the woman in the white coat that sits in the local general practice and suddenly they feel safe when in fact that person is prescribing products that are on average um, about a hundred thousand times more toxic than the average natural herbal or vitamin product so um, and, and it's interesting that um, even conventional foods, on average, are about a thousand times more toxic or hazardous than um, typical natural therapeutic health products. Um, so th there is a whole lot of misinformation. So we, if we look at what's happening in the food area, Codex basically says we will develop these general guidelines or standards that governments are not forced to adopt but essentially they exist in order to facilitate trade and also to protect consumers and by the way guys if you don't play the game our semi-private organization known as the World Trade Organization um, will be very happy to um, settle disputes and of course disputes are generally settled in favor of the biggest governments and the biggest transnational corporations by a very small number of people working in a very undemocratic way in order to keep the door open on the system that the elite have decided to create for us. So if you look at the um, SPS agreement, the sanitary and phytosanitary agreement um, that has been set up within the WTO, Article 3 specifically says that Codex will have remit over anything to do with food safety. And governments are to accept any of the Codex outputs, whether they are standards, guidelines, or recommendations. And they shall obey them. It's very important legally that the term shall has been used. So effectively, the, the SPS agreement 
um, is a backdoor method of making sure that companies play to the codex tango. And um, this means that, for example, if you're a smaller African nation and you decide you don't like the system where you're forced to grow a fairly low-grade crop like maize to try and support your population that in order to um, maintain your economy, which is now a Western-style economy based on Western-style or colonial principles, you are forced to sell cash crops that have no real value to your population from a food perspective. All they do is generate cash, such as cocoa, tea, coffee, sugar, etc. And if you decide as a progressive leader of one of those countries to say, you know, we've had enough of this, we want to develop, um, we want to reinstigate some of the polyculture systems of indigenous plants and indigenous herbs that we used to use to look after ourselves better. Um, basically, you could, by deciding that you didn't want to import the kind of foods that you'd been forced to import because you're, you'd, you'd been denuded of your fully self-sufficient system, WHO could step in and they could step in and say, Oi, you are now imposing barriers to, to trade, the products that were freely moving in and out, the movement of petroleum products and um, foods that um, were selling in your country. We can't do that anymore because you've developed this peculiar system of, uh, of agriculture and um, a peculiar economy. And they can put a lot of pressure on you. And um, so by and large, it prevents smaller players from bucking the system. And um, and that's how it works. So this so this actually affects almost every single country in the world, and not just Europe. Yeah, or it it absolutely does affect every country in the world. And and what what it does is it it's a situation that allows those countries that have been dominant on the planet in recent time to remain dominant, and to hold back those countries that really could now move in a radically different direction and uh, are basically held in limbo because of the threat of disturbing the systems that have been set up by the UN and the WTO. Very interesting. Now, very often we hear about these type of things where international bodies and major corporations and governments and things are involved and we feel this kind of impotence that uh, we're not actually able to do anything. Can you give us some indication of what you're doing and what it is that we can do to help to get the best possible outcomes? Well, the, you're absolutely right that the, the international guideline system in food and the behind-closed-door systems that work between governments and the pharmaceutical industry on the medicine side are very difficult to penetrate. Um, the most effective single way in which we can affect that system is to not purchase products that are associated with it. These systems survive because we are given minimal information and we blindly decide to buy our food in the supermarkets. We decide to, when we don't feel so well, go along and, and accept that prescription drugs are the way forward. If we decide to opt out of that system, suddenly the cash flow back to 
those major transnational corporations starts grinding to a halt. That is the major reason why the media is so carefully controlled, so that people can carry on being treated like sheep and do as they're told and continue to, to, to buy these products. So um, even more, and it may be slightly controversial for me to say this, even more than trying to utilize your democratic rights, even more important than that is to stop playing the game and buying these sorts of products wherever you can. And um, it doesn't mean you need to do it in its entirety, um, even if you do it to some degree, even if you become less dependent on them. So, for example, deciding that you were going to get a an organic box scheme delivered to your house um, makes a big difference. If that is where the bulk of fruit and veg now comes from you, and it all comes um, locally, because there are many of the box schemes um, don't rely on air freight, they strongly support local production, um, that makes a huge difference. Um, if you decide that you're going to prioritize looking after yourself in terms of um, eating the healthiest diet you possibly can, taking exercise, finding ways of trying to find some um, stillness of mind that prevents you from becoming one of the fastest rising statistics in healthcare, which is the development of anxiety and depression-related disorders, um, finding ways of, of settling your mind so you don't feed into that system, allowing yourself to be part of a social system so you're not isolated and just go back home and sit in front of your television eating a TV dinner. All that stuff makes a huge difference. Um, moving from a a centralized control system to a decentralized community-based system is at the heart of a quiet revolution that has already started in many parts of the the world, and um, and we we can literally make that decision from one day to the next. We don't need anyone to tell us. Um, there is more than enough information out there for for people to have a sense of what they should be doing to be able to do that. The second thing that they can do is attempt, and this is always tougher at the global level, whether you're talking about food and the system at Codex or the revolving door system between pharma and the medicine regulators, but you can attempt to influence your government, and you can do that in many ways. Now, you are doing it right now by doing this podcast trying to become a communication vehicle for some of these ideas to cut through the misinformation and the disinformation is a huge part of it. We are very fortunate to be living in an age where, as yet, in most countries, not all countries, but in most countries, the internet is not completely controlled. Let us use it for what it's worth. Let us get the information out that's meaningful so that we can effectively create communities that do communicate with one another and share ideas in terms of how we should be living. Um, the other thing is not to give up on your political democratic right. And although it's very difficult to influence your government at that kind of global level, you can certainly influence your government at a national or even regional level. And um, one of the ways in which you can do that is getting in front of your elected representative, whether it's your member of parliament, your in Europe, your member of your European parliament as well, um, in all countries, 
in all democratic countries, it is still worth putting some effort into that. Um, by and large, if you feel that you've done your bit by signing a petition, forget it. Petitions are used by the other side. Um, they are useful. They are useful on one condition only, that that is just one of many things you're prepared to do. So if you do a petition, for goodness sakes, don't believe that that's the end of it and everything will sort itself out. It won't. Um, we have um, an opportunity in Europe when you start to get a million signatures on a particular issue to force the European Commission to look at um, regulation, either problems in regulation or new regulation, if that's needed. Um, and um, so that's useful. But it's more important to be able to actually get in front of your MP or MEP um, or congressman or whatever it is, whichever country you're in, and tell them how you feel um, and tell them how it impacts you, both in terms of your ability to follow your particular choices in healthcare. It may be linked to your culture, and so there may be some real problems with um, discrimination, and this is obviously big for people from um, um, non-Caucasian backgrounds who choose to practice a non-European form of, of natural medicine. And um, in most parts of the world, there are fundamental rights and freedoms that need to be respected by governments. And what we keep finding is that governments are prepared to ride roughshod over that. And you need to be telling your elected representative about this. The other thing that happens is as and when people come together to challenge some of these laws, as we are doing right now with the um, laws affecting herbal products in Europe, get together and you know become part of the process. You can write a witness statement if your story is suitable. You can donate much-needed funds to the legal challenge because those funds are coming in from, from people who really care about this thing. And it's amazing how many people just keep thinking, well, someone else will fund it, someone else will fund it. And um, most of the companies are screaming that they don't have any money because the regulation is so expensive for them and um, they're, you know, everyone is crying poor. Um, and then you find that certain individuals who have often less money than other individuals who give nothing suddenly make very valuable contributions. Yesterday, we had a little health store in Ireland who sent in 500 euros to our legal challenge. I mean, it is so far beyond what they needed to do. Um, and of course, if they could only inspire all the people who came into the health store to donate five euros, that would have made a difference. But we know from so many people, they have been forced to put their head in the sand and they feel completely and utterly disempowered by the system around them. And um, what I would say is, for goodness sakes, don't feel like that because there's no reason to feel like that. You're still breathing air. You're still able to eat food. You're still able to make choices. You're still able to juice fruit and vegetables. You're still able to find herbs out there, even if you have to grow them. And um, things are going to get a lot worse unless we make some very radical changes to this European herbal directive. And, you know, plant medicine is something that precedes even our species. Uh, if we look at 
our closest living relatives, the primates, the other primates, they all have an intimate relationship with plants. Um, some work in uh, the Borneo rainforest that's that's been under, undertaken by um, an environmentalist by the name of Vili Smits has demonstrated that orangutans probably have a working knowledge of some 4,000 species of plants in the rainforest that they use medicinally. And here we are in Europe being told that traditions like Ayurveda and traditional Chinese medicine that are thousands of years old can't be used because they've created a framework that simply does not allow those products in the door. It just locks them out either for reasons of eligibility or because the quality control systems that are meant to protect consumers simply don't work. They do not work for complex mixtures of herbs that are common to those sorts of traditions. Um, and the final problem is the exorbitant cost of the registration scheme that's being offered. So um, that's uh, something that people can get involved in. It's something that people can go and um, help raise funds for. They can have um, you know, fundraising activities involving music, involving whatever they want to draw attention to this. And you know, we need to all be working together to, to be able to make these fundamental changes. It needs to be bottom-up, not top-down. Great. Well, it's uh, yeah, it's good to know that there are things that we can do, and uh, encourage everybody to get involved in even little ways that that they can. And uh, we'll give the, the website address later for the Alliance for Natural Health. I'm sure there's lots of ways on there for you to get involved. There are a lot of controversial subjects with a lot of misinformation, and I thought maybe you could steer us in the direction of, of uh, some resources, maybe books, maybe websites, that type of thing, where we can get what you would consider solid information about things. Um, so I'm thinking about GM crops, um, think about vaccination, organic food, because a lot of people think that organic food is the same as other food, it just has a price tag on it. And, and of course all of the things about, about Codex and the other, the other European directives and things. Um, what would be the best places to go for those? Well, funnily enough, if you, if you look on um, our European website, which is www.anh-europe.org, you will see a range of campaign areas that cover all of the areas you've just mentioned, from Codex through to vaccines, through to GM, um, to water quality and problems with fluoride and chlorination of the water. Um, and, um, and obviously the herbal issue, um, also electric, electromagnetic radiation issues through cell phones and um, wireless systems. And within that, we have many links to the key credible organizations. So I think rather than just um, listing each and every one of them, go into those campaign areas and look at the links that you find from them. Um, they're all of paramount importance because we believe that consumers have been massively misled on all of these fronts. I mean, you can travel anywhere around the United States and um, unless you're going into a, a, an organic restaurant, if you go to um, a typical restaurant, if you are served up anything involving corn or maize, say tortilla chips, and then you ask the waiter, excuse me, are these tortilla chips GM or 
not, they will usually have no idea what you're actually asking. And in the United States, GM has silently found its way into the food supply with Americans having a very low level of awareness about it to the point now that over 70% of foods sitting on supermarket shelves in the United States contain GMOs. And there is such a huge amount of misinformation given out by the biotech companies on its risks. And what we've seen is regulators just rubber stamping GM left, right and center. Even in Europe, we've seen the European Food Safety Authority rubber stamping GM and, and of course, now they've recently decided to um, move to a process that allows member states, we used to call them countries in Europe, they're now referred to as member states, um, to make their own choices. And some of them are very much influenced by the biotech companies and the UK, the Netherlands, Sweden, Finland are amongst those that are heavily influenced. And, and they are desperate to get GM into the ground. They have this ridiculous notion that coexistence of genetically modified and non-genetically modified crops can occur, when in fact all the real evidence suggests that, particularly where you have small farm sizes, the risk of contamination by GM is so high that effectively GM finds its way, its, its way into every part of the food supply. Um, even in Europe, where there is mandatory GM labeling, um, that has caused some 50 of the largest food production companies to not routinely put GMOs in their foods. But if you look at the area of animal feed, 85% of compounded animal feed in Europe is GM. You know, the, the, the about 75% of the world's soya crop, soybean crop, is now GM. Um, a very large proportion of the maize crop is, is GM. And um, so here we are in Europe thinking that we've actually managed to stop GM, but if you buy non-organically certified meat, the chances are it's been raised on genetically modified f feed. The big problem from both a health and environmental point of view is the kind of Russian roulette game that you play with GM. You are looking at a system where, while particular traits have been introduced from unrelated species, that those traits, those areas of DNA, those genes, those cassettes of information influence other parts of our DNA and other genes and cause them to express potentially in a different way. And of course, because genes are expressing proteins and enzymes, the key molecules that, that, that control and catalyze metabolism in the body, that is one of the reasons that so much of the research on the potential adverse effects of GM shows that inflammation and allergies and even cancer and death, all of the range of the spectrum of symptoms that are associated with our bodies ex being exposed to foreign proteins comes into play. And um, you'll, you'll find that in most Western countries in which 
GM is now being consumed regularly. The rates of allergies have shot up and all the um, the allergy researchers are saying we don't know why the allergy rates are going up so much. Well, we should have a better look at what's actually happening in the food supply. And coupled with that, if you then dumb down the food supply and then you um, emit certain nutrients or levels of nutrients or phytochemicals that are associated with managing your immune and endocrine system, which is exactly what's happened, your system's on the floor before you've even started. And um, and that's one of the reasons why so many people wander around feeling so exhausted and so tired and so unable to do anything other than be a sheep in society. So again, making the decision to, to not be part of that system, to be thoroughly aware of the type of foods that you eat, to understand that um, while there may be no great difference in the nutritional quality of some organic food that you find in a supermarket compared with non-organic food, there is a huge difference between the quality of fully, naturally, sustainably produced foods produced in a true agro-ecosystem rather than in a kind of agri-business system in which simply fertilizers and pesticides have been emitted so you can get your organic certification. So again, going for um, the fruit and vegetables that are available by box schemes, by and large you're having a much higher quality of produce. And of course, for those studies that show there's not a great difference, they tend to have been done on supermarket type foods. And yes, there isn't much of a difference other than you're likely to be consuming fewer pesticide residues. But um, why, why only go halfway? Why not go for the real stuff um, and, uh, and really make a difference? Um, in terms of vaccines, um, that is a hugely complex area um, because for each vaccine, there is a different response. For each individual, that is exposed to a vaccine, there is a different response. And um, our belief is that the targeting, targeting of children and babies with multiple vaccines is a potential very significant health risk. And there are no studies that are undertaken looking at the full vaccine schedule on, on children. We have a massive rise in a range of conditions such as autism or autism spectrum disorders that are unable to be um, accounted for by the orthodox medical profession. And actually there's an increasing body of evidence to suggest that vaccine load is one of the factors that contributes to that. Um, at the moment in Europe we have what is an autism epidemic of one in 40 boys developing autism and one in 125 girls developing autism in their young life. Now these people as they move into adulthood and, and incidentally this massive increase in the autism rate has occurred in the two years around 1988 and 1990. And that happens to be the time when multiple vaccines, in particular MMR, came on song. 
And um, Andrew Wakefield, the doctor that um, has been at the center of this dispute, has been regarded by many, if they're to believe the newspaper articles that have been written about him, as a charlatan. Um, knowing the man, knowing the research, knowing his commitment to this issue, he is as far from a charlatan as you can find. He is someone who's deeply committed to getting to the bottom of this issue, and he's working with researchers all around the world looking at this. He's also been working um, for many years with the families that are impacted by it. And in so many cases, it seems to be that some children are much more susceptible than others to these multiple vaccines. And in essence, it does appear that um, if you want to play that game, you are to a degree playing Russian roulette with your children. And the problem that we face in society is so huge, just looking at the autism spectrum disorder problem in its own right. Um, we were in the European Parliament um, with Andrew Wakefield a couple of weeks back, and there are researchers actually in the European Commission who are looking at this, and some of the facts that were tabled during the course of the day's presentations were that at the moment a single pensioner requires funding from tax paid by four individuals. If we look at the loss of labor from the workforce from those that suffer from autism spectrum disorder and are unable to hold down regular jobs in adulthood, the statistics currently tell us that actually there'll only be one taxpayer per pensioner in 20, 30 years' time. Now, that is a recipe for, for huge social um, problems. And um, if we don't find ways of addressing these sorts of issues, and of course, once again, they do relate to how the medical establishment conducts itself and how it deals with information and how much cover-up is actually going on. It does directly relate to what alternatives people have to avoid, for example, routine prophylactic vaccination. So, yes, the choice really is ours to make. And um, um, many of us have been living lives in a manner that is dramatically different from the average person for a long time. And we're not doing too badly. The interesting thing is that there are so few studies of people who choose to live in this different ways. But one of the reasons the belief is so strong in the community is those of us who make those choices, we actually don't need to take drugs. We don't go along and see doctors unless we break a leg. So it does come back to the individual. Make that choice yourself and let's see what a sort of society we can leave to future generations. Great, thank you so much. I'd love to sit here and ask you questions and listen to you talk all day, um, never get tired. But uh, unfortunately, you have a busy schedule, so I'm going to have to let you go. Um, I thought maybe just before you go, if you could uh, leave what you think is just one message that you'd like everybody to take home, even if it's the only thing that they get out of this talk today. If there's one thing I will say, please don't put your head in the sand and realize that each individual can so easily make a difference just by living your life in a different way, making different choices. Um, so 
if people did that and didn't allow themselves to become disempowered and feel that there's nothing they can do, that is the single most important thing for people to do. Great, thank you. And thanks so much for all of the work that you do on behalf of all of us, really. Um, you're an inspiration and uh, I hope everybody can uh, follow a little bit in your footsteps. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And that was my interview with Dr. Verkirk. Please don't forget to visit the websites of the Alliance for Natural Health and take some action. I really feel that the information presented today is of the greatest importance and that every one of us should be doing our bit to be involved in securing the future that we want. No one is going to do this for us and sure the ANH is out there fighting for us but they can only succeed if we do our part too. There are many actions we can take but on the lowest level what we need to do is simply ask. Ask our local shops to sell the products we want. Tell our government representatives what we want. Use our buying power to make it clear what we want to spend our money on. And through our intentions and our actions, we can start to manifest the world we want. Please feel free to contact me with any questions, comments and suggestions, because I would really love to hear what everybody thinks about the topics that we've covered. You can do so through a number of different channels. You can contact me through the Podomatic page at vitaltimes.podomatic.com or join Vital Times on Facebook. If you prefer email, the address is vitaltimes at andycraig.net. Remember to visit our Amazon store which you can access through the Podomatic page. Here you can find a hand-picked selection of relevant books. And if you like the work we're doing here, please consider a small donation which you can easily give by pressing the PayPal donate button on the right-hand side of our Podomatic page. Or if you prefer not to use PayPal, then email me and we can make some alternate arrangements. Thank you so much everyone for joining me for episode 2 of Vital Times. This is Andy, signing out and wishing you all an amazing day. All the best, until next time.